0: What we, what we need is increased knowledge so that when threats like this come up, we, we can protect what we know we value, which is local food, um, caught by local people supporting local communities.
1: Today on Dirty Linen, as we have been and as we will be for some more days to come, we are hanging in the beautiful waters of Port Phillip Bay and talking local seafood. Uh, today's guest is Oliver Edwards. Oliver is a chef at beautiful Hazel Restaurant in the city of Melbourne. He's also a founder of Good Fish, Bad Fish, a guide to sustainable seafood. Oliver, welcome to Daddy Linen. So great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, Oliver, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, you know, obviously you're passionate about seafood. You're also a chef. You've also, you know, um, Uh, studied a lot and you've got this sort of academic background as well. Uh, Just, yeah, introduce yourself.
0: Yeah, well, I'm a chef. I've been cooking for about 15 years, most of that in Melbourne, and I'm also a sustainable seafood advocate. So I guess in my time cooking in the early years, as I started getting more responsibility and ordering and putting together my own menus – Uh, I always had this niggling concern uh, about about seafood sustainability. I'd grown up on the coast myself uh, as a recreational fisher and loved the marine environment and wanted to make sure that my choices as a chef weren't adversely affecting um, the oceans. And I wanted to make sure I was making sustainable choices. So I went down the rabbit hole of attempting to find information about that and at the time it was it was rather lacking so I ended up uh pulling it all together and making a resource for other chefs and and consumers as well which was the good fish bad fish website Um, a few years later I went to uni and studied uh, social sciences and sustainability and I focused those studies largely on um, marine fishing uh, and seafood sustainability
1: yeah yeah, so interesting. I mean, so you've got this, yeah, seafood lover perspective. You use fish professionally as a chef and you've also got this academic background, but then also you're a recreational fisher. So it's, um, yeah, it's interesting to have all these different angles. When, w- in all of your different experiences, like what have you seen as the biggest issues that you keep rubbing up against?
0: Uh, I think some of the biggest issues uh, are transparency and traceability. The so the ability to identify where fish is coming from and how it was caught is is really the biggest issue for anyone trying to sort of choose sustainably.
1: Okay. And as a chef that's been purchasing seafood, what are the channels of purchase that you found, I guess, the most satisfying, you know, if you've been looking towards finding local sources? And what's yeah, what have the issues been there, or what have the joys and the issues been there?
0: um the greatest satisfaction i get is from purchasing direct from the fishers themselves so throughout my uni studies when i was traveling around the state um, meeting fishers and having conversations with them and and also through my restaurant purchasing it's been the direct connection with the people who work on the water and catch the fish themselves that i found the most satisfying and it really addresses those concerns of mine um regarding transparency and traceability because if you have a direct relationship with the person who's catching your fish you can ask them questions and you can be assured of where it's being caught and when and how so that for me is i mean it's it's a challenging uh, dynamic but it's that's the most satisfaction i get from my seafood purchasing yeah
1: Yes, yeah, so I know you've been a fan of Phil McAdam's sardines, um, and we've had Phil on the show as part of this series. Can you tell us about any other fishes that you've had direct contact with, and you know what kind of people they are, what the industry for them has been like, and yeah, what sort of species you've been able to get from them?
0: Yeah, so I purchase a lot um, of seafood out of Corner Inlet um, from fishers like Bruce Collis and Luca Netta there. Um, regarding Port Phillip Bay, and I mean, I love working with Beau Found, who is a diver who gets abalone and periwinkles and pulls pest seaweeds um, like wakame out of the bay. And as a, a sort of personal seafood consumer, not even through the restaurants. I mean, I love going down to to Mornington Beach and chatting to Neville Hutchins down there, whose family have been fishing down there for. I think seven generations since the, since the late 1800s and the history of that's in their little shack and you can still go down there and buy fish for a couple more weeks at least. So that's, that's the sort of thing I love. Um, Species that these guys are getting are, are largely sort of really more, much more affordable and really sustainable species. So like silver trevally, King George whiting, Australian salmon, garfish, snook, Um, bits of flathead and tailor and of course field sardines you know like these are all uh, really sustainable short-lived fast-growing species that are affordable and delicious
1: and you know just on that affordability I mean what difference do you reckon that makes
0: I think it's huge I think if we're talking access um reducing the reliance on sort of imports and transport, which adds so much cost. Um, but also the thing about Port Phillip Bay for me is the accessibility of, of the seafood. It gives local communities access to this fantastic, uh, cheap, sustainable and healthy uh, protein source. Um Fish like Australian Salmon and Silver Trevally and Taylor, they retail for under $10 a kilo. So they're incredibly affordable as well as being delicious and they've travelled no distance at all to get to the seafood eater, to the consumer.
1: So, Oliver, I know that you've been, you know, I guess campaigning and tracking this um, the legislation that's been brought in to reduce Victorians' access to local seafood. Can you tell us what you've seen over the past, I guess it's eight eight or nine years or so, um, as this you know as we've sort of drawn closer to this D day.
0: Yeah, I've seen reduced access to to the species I just mentioned. I mean, it's getting much harder to find fish like Australian salmon in the markets and much harder for me to get it at the restaurant through my suppliers, which is kind of crazy. Like this is a fish with just huge biomass that's historically being caught um, in, in large numbers, but really sustainably. These, the fish replenish their stocks um, very fast. And I'm seeing much less of it in market. I think we'll also start seeing, uh, well, we have seen price increases and and a lot more imported fish, whether that's imported from interstate or overseas.
1: And how has our society let this happen? Like, who are the stakeholders? What have the arguments been? You know, wh- why does this? Why is this happening?
0: I think it happened because we're disconnected from our food supply. When this legislation was proposed. Uh, in sort of 2013, 2014, it started getting a lot more traction. Uh, people who I talked to didn't really realize that fish was coming out of Port Phillip Bay. They didn't realize what a clean and vibrant uh, fishery was there, and so it was very hard to educate them about the loss that they were gonna experience when it closed. So I think that disconnection has been the, the biggest issue throughout throughout these campaigns.
1: And who have the people been that have been arguing for this? Like, why has it happened?
0: It was a recreational fishing lobby. So it was it was an action group that was called Friends of Corio Bay Action Group, um, who basically announced uh, along with the recreational fishing uh, body <laughs> that they wanted to. Remove commercial fishing, which they saw as uh, competition for for the fish in the bay, um, and they proposed this to the state government, who basically lapped it up. Um, it was coming up to an election; they thought it would get them more votes, and they sort of wholeheartedly got behind it, despite the fact that their own scientists were saying this is a sustainable fishery, and you know, third party conservation groups were agreeing.
1: So recreational fishers. Uh, didn't want to share the bay, so they lobbied, uh, state politicians, the state government, or the state, the, both parties, liberal and labor parties, both went to the 2014 election with a similar policy to reduce commercial fishing in the bay. Labor got in, you know, the wheels turned. Uh, I mean, when you were in there, I know that you were part of a campaign to retain access to commercial seafood in the bay. Like, what did, what sort of, picture did you get of the way the system works around these things <laughs>
0: um to be perfectly honest it was quite a depressing one uh, all our work felt rather futile um, uh, we were getting great responses from the greens party and and the sex party and everyone else sort of gave me the impression that this was a completely done deal so considering that both the major parties had this this policy platform, the chance of us overturning it felt really slim uh, as it turned out to be.
1: So it sounds like they were both scared that they wouldn't have this supposed lobby group of recreational fishers. Who knows how powerful that actually is as a voting bloc, but neither of them was prepared to test it by standing behind the science and uh, working for most victorians who you know are perhaps seafood eaters who it's definitely not a lobby group we can we can sort of guarantee that there are no votes among you know people who like to order fish in a restaurant or occasionally go to the fish shop to buy some flathead that's not a lobby group that is one thing for sure
0: yeah it's not really a a group with any cohesion and the thing that became really obvious was neither Neither were the fishers. So secret industry, Victoria came pretty late to the party uh, and attempted to build a campaign in support of the commercial fishers. But fishers in general are people who, you know, operate in isolation. They, they don't readily join um, industry groups. They didn't have a lobby. They didn't have money to spend on these campaigns. And they were also sort of, Reasonably um, inexperienced with a lot of the technologies, particularly social media, which the recreational fishers were all over and utilizing to their advantage. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I mean, even to the point of, you know, being awake at different hours to most of the rest of us, I guess fishes are just, you know, they just do their own thing. And because it's such um, generational businesses in most cases, you know, it's it's something they've grown up doing. It's They're just embedded in in that world. And perhaps, as you say, like not, you know, not extending out into perhaps actually enjoying not being part of the, you know, the main thrust of society.
0: Yeah. And, and they operate in a competitive manner as well. I mean, there are generally sort of agreed upon and established norms about who will fish where, but they're not even often sharing information between themselves, the fishers, because they are uh, competing for, for the resource also.
1: Yeah. That's so interesting, which I guess in that, in the light of that, it makes it even more extraordinary the way that the corner inlet fishers, although, you know, still have some interesting conversations between themselves, have managed to organise sufficiently to, I guess, feel like they're an organisation that can fight for their rights to continue supplying seafood to the market?
0: I think corner inlet. Um, and the fishers there have seen what's happened in other areas, you know, the closure of the Gippsland Lakes and, and then Port Phillip Bay, and they've recognised the need to, to organise. They also have a much smaller geographic area. I mean, the towns, you know, of Port Albert and Welshpool and aren't very far from each other. Whereas when you think about Port Phillip Bay, you've got commercial fishers launching from the Mornington Peninsula and also from down on the Bellarine so, and everything in between, including Corio Bay. It's it's a much larger geographic area and it, these guys aren't running into each other at the shops like the, like the uh, fishers in corner might be.
1: Something else I wanted to touch on is, you know, there's been, um, there's a 2014 election at which this policy came in. There was then the 28. 28- 2018 election we got a 2022 victorian state election you know the for example the ministry the minister for fishing was is not the same person that it was when this policy was passed like do you get the feeling that the current minister melissa horn is sort of as um i don't know has a deep understanding of this policy, believes in it. Do you think there is, where does the political will lie at the moment, do you think?
0: I'm not sure there is any. I'm not sure there's um, any political will to revisit this. And, you know, Phil McAdams had some really fantastic arguments uh, that at least the sardine fishery should be retained because it provides the bait for the recreational fishers and it's very easy to monitor and it's a very small scale fishery. And even his proposal to continue bait fishing was, was recently rejected. So I don't see much political will. And I think it's also compounded by the fact that because of the way the, the license buyback scheme worked, most of these fishers have already left. They've already exited the fishery. And so There's not really going to be any uproar when it closes in a couple of weeks. And there's not many people left fighting. They've had to go and find you know, other licences or, or other careers.
1: Yeah, it is really sad. So um, the way the buyback worked, it was that people were incentivized to get out early and the, um, the money that they would receive for surrendering their licence reduced year by year. Phil just really didn't want to do anything else and he stuck it out, I guess, you know, partly because that's just what he does, but he also believes in it as an industry and didn't want to see it go. But understandably, other people have, you know, made a choice, you know, a financial choice that you can completely understand. Um, I feel like the solution, Oliver, has to be that we, that there is a, a a seafood eaters lobby group, Um, you know, probably isn't going to be a formal foundation, but I feel like Victorian consumers have to be more exercised by this. Do you see, I mean, you know, you feed the public. Do you reckon people care about seafood? You know, what are the things that that people such as yourself can do to increase awareness and to increase that care factor?
0: I, I think that people do care. Um, we are often met with sort of excitement when people realise that we're serving fantastic, um, fresh, local seafood. Uh, we buy a lot through two hands uh, who who create connections between between chefs and commercial fishers and aquaculturalists, and they provide these QR codes where you can see, so you can see exactly when and where the fish was caught and when it was delivered to the restaurant. And I've I've given them to tables at, the, at Hazel who have scanned the QR code on their own phones and pulled up this information that says, this fish was caught at 4 a.m., it was packed at 8 a.m., it was at Hazel by 1 p.m., and they're eating it for dinner that night going, that's incredible. I've never, never seen anything like it. So there's definitely... There's definitely people who, who care about that, who care about quality provenance and, and food miles and would love to see uh, local seafood stay on the menu.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is such an awesome use of technology, isn't it, to really bring that supply chain to life. I mean... It- you know, I think a lot of Australians have thought perhaps for the first time about the food supply chains during COVID when it's, it's the first time many people have seen empty shelves of any description uh, and had cause to think about, you know, transport, we know the price of fuel is going up at the moment, uh, food prices in general will increase because of that. Do you think that this is a particular moment when people might become more passionate about sourcing food close to home?
0: I think it should be, and I, and I think it could be. Um, I think as chefs in restaurants, but also consumers, like like you said, we're all going to notice and feel price increases. And, and by and large, the produce that I get from small growers in the Yarra Valley or Rup won't go up in price while the stuff imported from Queensland, New South Wales and overseas will. So there's definitely an economic argument to retain local um, agriculture and fisheries and it also ensures freshness and quality. So I think this could be a time to really capitalise on that growing awareness of the need to preserve the local food systems, yeah.
1: Mm. So I feel like our hope is to go to the November election uh, as a... Sardine positive <laughs> group of eaters, and somehow uh, let it let it, somehow for it to become an election issue because I don't know how else it's going to change.
0: No, and the thing is that this could be overturned with with the stroke of a pen. You know, all it would require is a change in policy, and it could be legislated. In no time at all, these fishers haven't gone far and the licences would be picked back up. And it's a point at which that can be done before the knowledge is lost because a lot of the fishing knowledge that we're talking about has been passed down orally from generation to generation or it's sitting in little books. Like when you go and visit Neville Hutchins down on Mornington Beach and chat to him, he's got catch records from his great-great-great-grandfather who wrote in a small book, you know, today in these weather conditions in this spot, I caught this much salmon. And he can still go to those spots in the, in those conditions and catch that fish. It's incredible. So while that knowledge is still present, uh, I think that's that's the time to attempt to rebuild the fishery and have these people take back the licences.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely love that. And I mean, I'm really heartened that you do think that people would pick those licenses back up. That you know they've still got the gear and and the and the knowledge and and the desire to go out there and fish for those species.
0: Yeah, I think I think they would. Um, but what would be required in order to ensure there's no future conflict with the recreation recreational fishers is. Is a much larger campaign knowledge campaign so that people understand the fishery itself you know i think it was quite easy for the government to to dog whistle uh, environmental causes because when they said net fishing remember we weren't very far uh beyond the the super trawler conversations that was that was i think the year prior so when they said net fishing people envisioned these huge super trawlers pulling through the seas and taking everything with them. Whereas in fact, the commercial fishers in Port Phillip Bay are in tinnies, often smaller than the boats the recreational fishers use. Uh, So I think, you know, we need to enforce those visuals so that people understand this is a small scale fishery with people who are stewards of the marine environment and have a vested interest in ensuring the ongoing sustainability of it.
1: Yeah, that's so well said and so important. I think net fishing, if you don't know, it just does have this connotation of just plundering and pillaging. Um, but, yeah, having been lucky enough to go out on a boat in Corner Inlet and just seeing the delicacy with which those nets are drawn in and only the species that they want and that are of size, are, you know, brought into the boat with hand nets, It's um, it's a really precise, targeted, and respectful way of seaf- of collecting seafood yeah for for, um, for a buying public.
0: It really is the saning is such a selective method and when someone like Phil goes out and targets sardines and, and runs a, a purse seine, in his uh, case around a school of sardines he gets no bycatch. there's not other fish coming on board that that end up as wastage or thrown back. He's really targeting exactly what he, wants to take and what he has the quota to take and what he can sell, you know, that day and in the coming days. It's it's a highly selective fishery.
1: So, Oliver, have you received your last sardines from Phil? Do you think, uh, will there be any more before he has to call it a day?
0: Uh, I really hope this isn't the last batch. I spent this morning um, pickling, pickling a few more um, uh, just for my home consumption. <laughs> I had my little daughter strapped to my chest and, pickling these sardines, I was really hoping it wouldn't be the last time that we did it.
1: Mm. And when, let's say, you do get a, another couple of boxes, what will you do with them for the restaurant?
0: Um, I think my aim will be to preserve them so we can serve them for as long as possible. Um, I love pickling them with a little uh, white, white onion and fennel, um, some bay leaves and an apple cider vinegar and then serving them with, you know, char-grilled toast or or something like that. And I think I'd also get on a couple of batches of, of fish sauce so that we could continue serving this really amazing local product for the next few years as well.
1: I mean, ugh. That all sounds amazing, but like I'm almost in tears thinking about that. It's so dumb that you have to do this archival preservation of a resource that we know is just sitting out there multiplying.
0: Oh, uh, I get I get incredibly emotional uh, when I think about it and when I talk about it because you know I know that this is people's livelihoods, but it's also a fantastic resource for the Victorian people and one I think that we should be immensely proud of. And it always blew me away that the politicians didn't see that side of it you know we almost need uh tourism australia or tourism victoria to get behind it because the fact that we can harvest this phenomenal seafood right on the doorstep of a great city like melbourne is something we should be so proud of so proud of um and and not let it go to waste yeah
1: i mean we love shouting about our food credentials uh this does seem to fly in the face of that you're absolutely right
0: it does indeed yeah
1: um, Oliver, it's been really wonderful to have you on the show, and yeah, just to get a sense of the depth of your passion and you know your long experience with the with these fish and with this issue. Is there anything else that you'd like to say?
0: I think just that the people listening should um, really try and increase their knowledge of where their food comes from and have a great understanding of where this food is is caught or or harvested or grown because. What we what we need is increased knowledge so that when threats like this um, come up, we, we can protect what we know we value, which is local food, um, caught by local people supporting local communities.
1: Yeah, extremely well said. Oliver, thanks so much for coming on Dirty Linen. It's been fantastic to have you as part of this important conversation.
0: Thanks for having me, Danny.
1: This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant.